Well, good morning, real life social distancers. We're really in a series, One Nation Under God. It's a sarcastic title because we're not one nation. United States, not really. It's kind of divided states right now. And the divide's incredible. If you missed the beginning of the series, let me just quickly bring you up to speed a little bit. This divide did not begin under President Trump. It's always been there, but it seems more pronounced today. You have the right to the conservatives, the left, the liberals, screaming talking points to each other. I'm not going to restate them all, but it's just it's so frustrating. We can go on and on. On top of this, we're, we're living with COVID-19. People are boiling up in frustration. On top of this, we've got street riots with so much senseless damage. People are boiling up under frustration. We could take the entire service and just talk about the symptoms of the division of our culture. Welcome to America in 2020. But into this, we're trying to bring the gospel. Satan uses this cultural war and cultural anger to damage the church, divide the church, damage our walk with Jesus. Hence the series, One Nation Under God. Yeah, it's a sarcastic title. We're not one nation. And so Satan tries to use this, this political divide in our country to somehow divide the church. We have, to, we have to guard against it. And I fear this divide will become greater as we inch closer to November. For Satan, it's the gift that keeps on giving. An old classic rock song, for what it's worth, Stephen Stills wrote the line, Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Welcome to America. And Satan's going to divide us and divide the church. It's the wedge. Politicians work very hard for our all-important vote. And the only way to get that vote is to promise the American dream. Remember last week? It's all about me. The American dream, whether we admit it or not, is vital to who we have become. The American dream comes across as a good thing at face value. I, I've earned some things. My house, my car, my income, my comfort, my lifestyle. It's about me. Me. You want my vote? Me. Meet my needs. Increase me. And against this, Jesus comes along with the opposite. He says, take up your cross and follow me, Christ. You are now a living sacrifice, dying out to yourself. So the gospel is really pinned against the American dream. And the problem, the American religion has become the American dream. We get trapped into it and we become incredibly fragile Christians. And so for us, the American dream at face value sounds pretty good. In reality, we're just waiting to be spiritually derailed. So let's build on this. Some have the frustration, I'm serving Jesus, why am I not achieving the American dream? It's not happening for me and I'm serving Jesus. I thought he was supposed to help me. I thought he was supposed to kind of help me achieve the dream. The culture has recreated the gospel. President Bush, before him President Clinton and then Obama and Trump, they were elected on the narrative that they were going to help me get the dream. Where they let me down, Jesus won't. Great old song, Jesus never fails. So if, I'm, if I declare myself a follower of Jesus, he's going to help me. He's going to partner with me. He never fails. He's going to help me get the American dream. And if I don't achieve my dreams, Satan jumps in and I live so fragile. The great theologian Brennan Manin wrote, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. They acknowledge Jesus with their mouth and walk out of the church and deny him by their life. 
After all, in America, anybody can be a Christian. Is there a more generic term? Every politician's a Christian. In the Middle East, living kingdom means death. Don't you wonder, what would persecution in the United States reveal? Persecution like fire tends to burn off the weak, wood and hay, that purify the strong, gold and silver. Could it be in America we're not persecuted because Satan is winning without it? Could it be he doesn't need persecution? He's winning without it. He's effective without it. If we lock into the American dream, and that's the priority of our life, and Jesus ought to help provide that, he doesn't need persecution. My life, my political vote revolves around this reality. How will Trump help me? How will Biden help me? Maybe we're really not persecuted because Satan doesn't need to. And in the middle of this, Jesus pursues me and you with this incredible love. So I think sometimes we got to stop everything and say, okay, time out. What are the basics? What's the hardcore truth? So that we don't kind of get these things mixed up. Fundamentally, the gospel reveals who God is, who we are, and how we reconcile to him. You're dismissed. Sit there. That, that's all it is. The gospel is who God is, who we are, and how we reconcile to him. At that level, it's, it's kind of simple, kind of clear. Yet the American dream, where, where self reigns, we have this dangerous tendency to, to misunderstand or, or minimize or even manipulate the gospel to accommodate us. But we've got to stop everything. Like I said, let's go to the core. Explore the gospel. And what is the Americanized gospel? But you'll discover, as, as we understand the true gospel, it always comes back to kingdom. Oh, stop him. There he goes again. Living my life that God received glory seems to be the bottom line of most everything. All my sermons end up going there because Scripture tends to go there. Living my life in such a way that God received glory. After that, everything else is a symptom. The way I am at home, the way I am at work, the way I am as a dad, the way you might be as a mom, the way I'm raising my kids, the, the, the integrity of money and all, all that junk. God received glory. The gospel is designed around God's glory. He is sovereign. He owns everything. He is holy. He is above all. He is righteous. And he is loving to everything that he has made. And we love to discuss the truth of his love. He is a loving Heavenly Father. And we have a tendency, particularly because we want to feel good, and I, me too, we have this tendency to over-preach and over-stress His love. We ought to! He is loving, but He's also a wrathful judge. And what sometimes people don't get, they're the exact same thing. Wait a second. How can He be loving and wrathful and it be the same thing. Because he loves us, he hates everything that hurts us. Because he loves us, that's why he really hates sin. Because sin eventually always damages us, no exception. That's why he hates everything that is of sin. He will not tolerate it. He will not look upon it. Because he loves us so much. So as you think about it and really define the gospel at its purest level, his love and his wrath are kind of the same thing. Habakkuk 
prayed this powerful truth. Take a look at it, Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk, excuse me. Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong and sin. Why not? Because he loves us. Maybe the, the first verse you ever learned. People who don't go to church can quote this verse. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's all about love. John chapter 3, verse 16. Did you ever read down a little bit? Scan down just 20 verses. Same chapter, John chapter 3. Now verse 36. Look what he says. Those who believe in the Son have eternal life, but those who do not obey the Son will never have life. God's anger stays with them. There's both sides of the same coin. Incredible love, incredible wrath. They end up kind of being the same thing because he hates anything that damages us. The gospel reveals God's ultimate glory. In America, we tend to want to speed read through the wrath part. We become very comfortable with the God who, who loves us. He does. We, we tweak it to say, therefore, he should provide the American dream. And we almost ignore the fact that this is the same Jesus who will damn us at walking away from truth. But I think as we look at his word, it inspires us to, to an even greater awe as opposed to the Jesus who makes the American dream happen. Not only does it reveal who he is, it reveals who we are. Sin entered the human race, and we're humans. Yeah, all of us. And because of that, we have a desire to sin. It's called fallen nature. I don't have to tell you this. You kind of know it. Because you're human. There's something rebelling against God within people. Scripture even calls people bad. Because we have this, this terrible tendency of rebellion. This terrible tendency to run away from God. Why? It's crazy. It makes no sense. It doesn't have to make sense. Even calls us bad. Luke eleven thirteen. Even though you are bad, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. In our evil tendency, we tend to rebel against God. There are people that you know that you wish would come to Christ. And for the life of you, you can't figure out why they don't. Because all He offers is more than eternal life, but a life here of purpose and joy and presence and power. And they choose absolutely ruin. It drives you nuts. Well, are human beings. We have this tendency. We take God's law and we disobey it purposely. The one who calls the storms and they come. The one who calls the clouds and they come. The one who says the rain to fall and it does all creation obeys him immediately. Except us. He gave us free will. We have the ability to look God in the face and say no. And so Jesus says we're all slaves to sin. And as slaves, we'll blind ourselves to truth or we'll invent a truth that fits us a little better. Anything we're uncomfortable in the Word, we'll skim over and we'll invent something else. A lot of people are serving the Jesus they've invented instead of Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4 
says we don't see the Christ because we are blind in our own spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness isn't just blindness. It's a blindness that says, I'll invent the Jesus I like and I'll serve that one. As opposed to the power of the gospel, which is awe-inspiring. What's worse is we can't do anything in ourselves to change before a holy God. In fact, the scripture says we're hopeless. And in America, what do we do with that? We change it. We end up in the land of self-improvement. I can. Certainly I'm not evil. Certainly I'm not spiritually dead. We live in the land of, of, of positive thinking. Go to Barnes & Noble, self-improvement, and look at all of the books. I can become better. That'll please God. He wants me to be better. I can do this. I will be good. The problem compared to what? Isn't good a relative term, really? You know, compared to Hitler, I'm great. Compared to Mother Teresa, I don't know. But I, surely God wants me to be good. That's the God that we've invented. That's why God is there. To make good stuff happen. I, I, I might be right, but God knows me. That's okay. Pretty soon, we accept our life rather than lead our life slow there we accept our life rather than lead our life that's part of the hopelessness and this part about being damned in our sin we skip that part pretty quick the dream is about me and I will be better I'll check off the boxes I'll show up at church I'm a good person I'll, I'll pray a little prayer a quickie forgiveness I'll put some money in the offering plate or online and so we create this gospel of self-sufficiency in America. The problem is it's not the gospel. And we end up almost with, with, with competing narratives. One, God loves me. I'll follow a couple of steps and I'm saved. Another says, I'm dead in my sin. And in my rebellion I can do nothing for myself. I am radically dependent upon God to change me. The first can sell books, maybe fill stadiums. The second saves souls. The real gospel tends to go into a depth of our soul and reveal our need. The real gospel gives us a passion for him, not me. That's why he says, die out to yourself. The real gospel begins to tear on our soul because we can't program salvation. We can't program God. The real gospel tends to open our eyes away from blindness. The real gospel begins to tear away all the garbage. And he initiates. He loves us so much that he says, I will begin the conversation with you. You don't have to begin the conversation with me. I will chase you. That's why he says, I will seek you. I will actually chase you that we might strip away all the false Americanization of the gospel. We'll strip away everything else and we'll get down to business, me and you. And when he comes, when you sense that he is dealing with me in the real gospel, you know it. The, the, the word says God is not a God of confusion. Satan tries to say it's the emotions of the church. Or it's this or it's that. Somehow the Holy Spirit has a way of chasing you and saying, this is not a game anymore. This is not a cliche anymore. This is me and you. Time for us to get real with each other. And I want to forgive you. 
You are speaking to me. He always initiates. You say, Gene, what does that feel like? I don't know. Because we're individuals. I know what it felt like for me. My hands got a little sweaty. My heart seemed to go a little faster. My mind seemed to go to him. And I ended up in this spiritual wrestling match. And it wasn't so much the devil versus God. It was kind of like me versus God. Because I don't know that I wanted to live my life that he received glory. I was more comfortable trying to figure out how I could receive glory. And I had the power to say no because we're not robots. And decades ago I discovered once I said yes, things began to change. There was a trajectory of my life, not the American dream, but a trajectory of my life. That's the beauty of the gospel. Gospel is really an old Greek word. It's two syllables. It's two words. Good news. Gospel literally means Good news. This is not checking off a box and then saying, God, I've checked off the box. I prayed a little prayer and now help me get the dream. Because it's not about me. It's about me having the opportunity to surrender to a love that you can't even articulate. This is no longer a fragile spiritual walk. This is no longer church shopping to find the perfect church. It's an opportunity for me to come before the cross and say, I want you because you love me and sought me. We take a look at Jesus and the cross. The event of the cross has been Americanized. It's, it's been changed a little bit in our culture to fit our agenda. And when that happens, of course, we miss the gospel. We're not saved because Jesus was falsely accused by Jewish and Roman officials. We're not saved because Pilate sentenced him to death. We're not saved because there were nails in his hands and nails in his feet and he hung on a cross. Do you really think the false judgment of men heaped on Christ would deal with my sins? Do you think the crown of thorn and the whips and the nails would be enough to, to save me? There's something else going on here. And add to this, picture Jesus in Gethsemane. Does this ever bother you? He's crying out. He's actually sweating drops of blood. And he's saying, don't let this happen. Let this cup pass for me. Doesn't that bother you a little bit? How many of his followers have gone to execution praising God? And here the one that we're praising is saying, I don't want to do this. Doesn't part of that make you go, wait a second. Who's not so brave? I'm, ISIS is, I read they executed men by a beach by cutting off their head. And I read that they sang hymns before they died. His followers all through time have, have, have died with praise. And Jesus, the one they're praising, is about to die. And he's saying, I don't want to do it. Who comes across as weak? Who comes across as strong? And if I need to die at some point because of my faith, do I have the courage to die for the one that seemed to not have courage when he died? Do the martyrs of all time have more courage than Christ who they're dying for? Who we see trembling and weeping in a garden before he's going to be executed? Doesn't that picture kind of throw you a little bit? Rest assured, he's not a coward facing the Roman soldiers. No one in history has had a death like Jesus and no one has gone with more determination or more courage. He's about to face divine wrath. And he knows it. 
He is holy. He is about to take my sin and your sin on him, and he is holy. On top of this, he knows he'll be abandoned on the cross by the Father. God is light. And without him, there's outer darkness. And at noon, the world goes pitch black as the Father turns his back on the Son. And Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. He knows this is going to happen. When he's crying out in the garden, it's not the cup of Rome. It's not the cup of the cross. It is the wrath of God that's going to come upon him. He is a holy one that's going to experience the wrath of sin. All the wrath stored up through all humanity is going to be poured in one lump on one Jesus Christ because he loves me. Don't you dare ever say, he's not passionately in love with me. He sweats blood over the thought of this. It's not the nails, it's not the cross, it's not the, the, the crown of thorns. It's the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. This powerful love of a Savior redeeming me. There's no moment in history more powerful, save the resurrection, than these moments on the cross. It is the gospel. The just and loving God, creator of the universe, saw a sinful people, sends his only begotten son, God in the flesh, to bear all of his wrath that we might live in glory, that we might live kingdom, that we might have power over sin. He opens the door for us to experience him. Once I think we see all of this and try to take it all in, overwhelming as it is, Christianity sales pitches seem hollow to me. Pray this prayer, sign this card, accept Jesus. No. It's a call not only to reject the American dream, it's a call to reject everything outside of Christ. Reject everything outside of living my life in kingdom. That's why we don't see these modern phrases, except Jesus, in the Bible. In America. And churches of America, have we taken the infinitely glorious Son of God who endured infinite wrath and now reigns as Lord of all and reduced him to like this poor, puny Savior who's begging us, please accept me? The proper response to the gospel is us to come running to him in unconditional surrender. It's us running to the king of kings, the conqueror. It's not Jesus handing out their hat in hand. Would you please let me into your life? It's us running to him in absolute surrender, who is king of kings. In other words, no more games, no more cliches. It is surrender. That is the gospel. And as you think about what's being propagated in America versus the gospel, they're not really the same thing. And we can get sucked into something very different. We need the desperate power of the gospel of Christ. We need it in our hearts. We need it in our churches. We need it in our nation. As we've even yesterday celebrated independence. Fourth of July. The loudest holiday we got. What a time for revival in our country of independence of evil. Independence of satanic influence. Independence of the American dream. Independence of everything Satan tries to do to divide us. Let's stand together. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, I don't know what the gospel feels like for everybody. We're not the same. That's the beauty of you. You love diversity. You do. We're not the same. I don't know what your presence feels like for everybody. But I sense your presence here. 
I believe there's someone that's saying, this all makes sense. Crying out loud, it's not just showing up at church. There's something much bigger going on here. I have a Savior who initiates, who comes to me. God in heaven, where I have sinned against you, where I have tried to reinvent you, where I am not living my life that you receive glory. I'm not living my life of purpose. I sense you speaking to me. No games, no cliches, no church language. It's me and you. I'm not even in a crowd anymore. It's me and you. If I have failed, forgive me. If I have yielded to a tendency of a fallen nature, forgive me. And you say, he that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. I didn't die on the cross to tell you no. I thank you for your forgiving power. Forgive me. I live my life spiritually determined that you receive glory from my life. Father, we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Next week, we're going to inch a little bit deeper in the series, One Nation Under God, the gospel in a divided nation. But let me leave you with just one quick thought. Does your spiritual walk guide your political views? Or do your political views guide your spiritual walk? Now think about that. Let's praise together this morning.